Uh, Nell and I, my wife Nell, have the opportunity at the college to have students over regularly. Nell works in the student life area, and many times that includes a meal. You know, free meals attract students, and so they'll come over. We love breakfast foods in the evening. Anybody with me? Breakfast for supper. So it's not uncommon for us to have scrambled eggs or waffles and pancakes and hash browns and bacon for supper. And it's not uncommon for Nell to not know exactly where the students are with their seasoning desires. And so she doesn't put a lot of seasoning, like in the eggs, for example. She'll just like set that out for the students, you know, to sit down. So it's not uncommon when we sit down to actually, uh, you know, for that familiar phrase, hey, would you pass the salt? (laughs) You know, happen over the table because we're just going to leave that to the students, you know. Let me ask, could we survive without salt in our food? Uh, I don't know, hardly. There's so many various types of salt. You know, you got the Himalayan salt, you got the sea salt, you got the table salt. Maybe there's probably some others there. Where would we be without a pinch of salt here or a teaspoon of salt there in our recipes or lightly salted bag of chips watching football? I mean, where would we be? We'd be in a world of hurt. (laughs) Salt's right up there with our daily intake of vitamin C, isn't it? It's just one of those nutritional... Uh, valuable uh, de- dietary demands, isn't it? Okay, so confession time. Who's like a salt addict here? Anybody? Go ahead, look around. Prayers are needed. For <laughs> salt's just kind of one of those things. Actually, salt's necessary in our daily life, it's, uh, and it's truly necessary in our culture, you know? Uh, uh, in no uncertain terms, friends of yours, maybe even family, children, uh, they're asking for some salt. Hey, would you pass the salt? They may not verbalize it quite like that, but they're asking for something like that in their life, no matter their age. Children, friends, colleagues in your world uh, who are not yet friends of Jesus and, and not yet following God, they're searching for meaning. You know those basic questions, who am I? And that's not an 18-year-old question. I, I, that's, that's a mid-50s or, or 70 or 80. Who am I really? And what's my purpose? And that question, where am I going? Those are questions that people are asking. They're seeking answers for. And you know what? They're trying to find answers by eating meals in our society with worldly wisdom that they think is going to satisfy and they think it's going to provide them some. It's just secular comfort food with hardly any nutritional value and it's bland at best as they try to find answers to those questions. Uh, You know, in that diet, there's no nutritional value for their soul. There's no flavoring, really, for their heart and mind. There's no meaning in what the world offers in search for those questions. Take Ecclesiastes, for example, Solomon. If you read Ecclesiastes, you know he tries to find those same answers through the pursuit of money, or sex, or position and power, or possessions, even in knowledge. And, and Solomon says, in my search in the world to find those answers, it's led to futility. Hmm. Do you hear your friends? Do you hear the children or people around you asking, hey, would you pass the salt? They're, they're, they're asking us for direction in their life. They're asking us for something to find some meaning in their life. And they, They may not put words to it, but they want some significance in their life. 
And you, as a representative of Jesus, as an ambassador, as a deputized authority representative of Jesus, you get to bring some seasoning that they need. Why ask us? Well, because when you're in intimate relationship with Jesus, and when you're abiding with Jesus, and when you're dating Jesus regularly and, and engage with him and him with you, and you're hanging out with him all the time, that's your purpose and direction in life. Jesus said it this way, speaking to some people he was hoping would enter into covenant, he said those famous words, you are salt. <laughs> you are salt, you're the salt that they seek. You and I are God's seasoning into their lives. His exact words from Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount was, you are the salt of the earth. You've heard that. My goal this morning is to make some relevant application from, from that pretty familiar phrase. But before we get there, we need to recall that Jesus said that phrase originally to a large crowd near the Sea of Galilee on the northern part in northern Palestine 2,000 years ago. And so in the phrase you, it's, it's them before it's you. So let's figure out the them for just a minute. Who are the you that Jesus is speaking to? And how they would have heard this, before, before we can kind of begin to answer how we are salt of the earth today, I think we need to rehearse how those original fo- folks would have heard that they were the salt of the earth, and that salt concept, Jesus uses some metaphor here, so how would they have heard this? What would they have been thinking when they heard Jesus say those famous words, and he coined that phrase? Well, a few things here, just for... Uh, in their world, in ancient Palestine, in the first world, salt was not a de-icing agent, and salt wasn't like a thawing agent. Like, they didn't spread it on sidewalks. They didn't put it on the roads. It wasn't, their climate's not the Pacific Northwest at all. So we got to kind of remove that. Uh, salt wasn't used for de-icing in Palestine. So how would they have used salt? Just to remind us of a few things. Salt was sometimes used as a preservative of meat. Um, in a non-refrigerated culture, they didn't have a frigid air or a, or a nice Samsung stainless steel refrigerator. They had to rub some salt in there, not to make some amazing dry rub. That wasn't the purpose. It was to preserve it, to keep it so they could have it after the butcher took care of it. So they'd rub some salt in it. Commonly also, salt was used for some flavoring. Not maybe as much as we would think, but it did provide some seasoning like, like nothing other. And for your information, salt in the region of Palestine, if you can picture the Sea of Galilee in the northern part, down below the Jordan River is the Dead Sea. A lot of the salt that was in the Palestinian area in Jesus' world was, was salt that, was, that, was, that came out of the Dead Sea. And if it wasn't processed well, if it wasn't processed with removing those additives from the Dead Sea, then the salt would become poor over time and that unprocessed salt actually would have no, would have little use. Here's the exact words Jesus said in that sermon, Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And then Dr. Luke kind of records Jesus saying it, maybe very likely in a different message, but he repeats the same concept. It sounds similar. Therefore, salt is good. I don't know if Jesus is a chef, but he understands the role of salt. But if even salt has become tasteless, 
with what will it be seasoned? It is useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's just thrown out. So how would they have heard this? Salty salt becoming unsalty salt? Is that even possible? How does that work? Well, to get at the answer, here are a few more uses of how they understood salt and would have used salt in their world in the first century. It helps us understand what Jesus was getting at. In the ancient world, bakers covered the slab of stone in their ovens with salt to kind of make, it, make a catalytic effect for the burning fuel in the ovens. And many times the burning fuel was dung. I'm telling you, I would love cedar or maple for my steaks, but dung chips, I don't know about that. So salt was there, but after a time in that salt on the slab of stone as a catalytic, it would wear out. And it would, it would, if it wasn't removed and replaced, it would remain unsalty, and therefore the granules just needed to be tossed and replaced. Salt also served as a preservative, not just for meat, but for the manure pile. That's why Jesus said it that way. They would have understood this visual because they might have done it in the chores in the morning that, uh, uh, to, to kind of slow the fermentation, to decrease the odor of decomposition. Salt was used also as a fertilizer for soil. It would, it would wilt weeds and it would improve the soil at a deeper level. Now the negative value could actually be an environmental hazard. Salt granules that, it's, that have lost its designed impact actually could ruin the soil. So in other words, the salt could become no longer useful and, and actually could, could become an environmental hazard, no longer function as it was designed. So here it afresh, you are the salt of the earth, but salt can become unsalty. Hmm. To Jesus' original audience, these are not just pithy statements like a tweet in your, in your Twitter account or your Instagram. These are based in an Old Testament idea of covenant. He's speaking this to woo people into a covenant relationship with God. These are, these are based in a covenant invitation in a relationship with God. We're talking covenant of salt. God's covenant people living with a different moral code and different ethic. That you, there's a covenant difference of saltiness. By grace, we're invited into this covenant through Jesus and therefore deputized as salt agents to help others connect into this covenant. To stop being salty while in covenant, like in, in, a, in a spiritual marriage with, with Jesus, sounds shocking. How is that possible? To cease abiding and to cease intimate closeness with Jesus as the source, as the source of salt, you cease that abiding and you become salt, less salty. Ceasing to be in sync and in step with the Spirit who is forming us into the likeness of Christ, you seek to do your own step and not be in step with Him, there's a sense of losing saltiness. Losing saltiness. It's indicative of a growing apathy about others coming into covenant with God. Oh, that's just their choice. Instead of a heartbreak, it means we've gotten fully sucked into this narcissistic culture and the trap of God's enemy to make life all about, as our Constitution would say, happiness. Who uses stuff, this enemy does. Materialism of earth to eclipse abiding in Christ and to align with his heart 
to those who are far from God. And I think there's an apathy of we no longer care and we're unsalty. Losing saltiness means we care for those far from God, with a, but it's been replaced with dormancy or heartache or insecurity or se- a seek for self-comfort or, or self-righteousness with a self-absorbed focus with one's own holiness. Like, like salt in water that can get diluted, I think, I think temporary pleasures of this world can dilute the effect of saltiness in us. The stuff of this world challenges heaven's eternal purpose. And the result? No gospel impact. The Lord desperately desires. He says this at the Sea of Galilee. He desperately desires those folks and us today. Would you enter into a salty covenant with God? Because the world sure needs it. It means a selflessness. Well, the rub of being salt, pun intended, (laughs) is that salt is only influential when it's out of the salt shaker. Salt is only good when it's out of the shaker and applied onto uh, people's lives who are asking for it. So living life out of the shaker will fuel our concern for unbelievers. Now hear me, time out. Yes, yes, yes. We need to retain our saltiness by abiding in Jesus and Jesus' people. That's important. The fellowship and the prayer time and the biblical study and accountability, we need that. But if we preserve our saltiness and we're all about trying to go to heaven with as much saltiness as possible, we're missing the mission. The goal isn't to preserve or just hang out with other salt granulars to be safe in a shaker. And at the same time, Expect to make a gospel impact in people's lives. Those two have to be figured out. This is where we're going to pivot in the message to some practical things. Deal? The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He offers some how-tos on effective saltiness with people in the book of Colossians to the church in ancient Colossae. He says these words. Devote yourselves to prayer. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I also have been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way you ought to speak. Please pray. And then he says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward unbelievers, outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always seasoned with, or always be with grace as though seasoned with Salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Devoting yourselves to prayer will ensure we remain vibrant. Devoting ourselves to prayer will ensure that we remain connected with God, and as a result, to ensure that we're effective and that we're salty. Now, in principle, I think we could all probably say an amen. That's really helpful, Derek. Thanks for flying over here. But let's get specific, all right? Let's, let's try to figure out what this might actually look like. What, getting out of the salt shaker may be as simple as this idea, just one. It may be as simple as intentionally walking out of your front door. Most of us, I think, have moved a time or two in our life. Maybe, maybe you just relocated or maybe you've got plans to, pl- to move to another state or neighborhood this year. Uh, what if God had more of a hand in the purchase or the rental of your property than you realized? What if, what if, what if we believe that he was our real estate agent, ordaining where we would reside, where we could be salt, 
wanting us to speak of him there, wanting us to speak of him to those people, wanting us to be on that street, in that zip code, in that school district, on that mission field. What if he placed you right where you are for something bigger than what you think? In one neighborhood that we moved into, Nell and I and our kids, uh, there was this neighbor that caught our attention. I observed, I wasn't being nosy, but I did observe that he was an orderly guy. He and his wife were routine. They were manic- had amazingly manicured lawns, scheduled uh, the, with precision, and they had one son, um, about the age of one of our kids. So Nell and I took our dog, we leashed up our little Jack Russell for a walk, and we saw him and his wife um, out shooting baskets with their boy in the driveway, Rick and Lori. We found out their names. He was a cop finishing up his education, his, uh, his degree in business, and she was a nurse to the terminally ill. Learned that pretty quickly. And a few months after that, uh, we visited on their sidewalk and in the driveway quite regularly. In a neighborhood garage sale helped open up a conversation even more, uh, sparked a friendship with these guys, and that included many sidewalk talks, whether it was shoveling snow or whether it was uh, picking up leaves and, and maybe watching a tornado form in the sky. So these talks, Nell and I believe, were born out of many prayers that we prayed before even moving into that neighborhood. Prayers of God, which neighborhood would you like for us to live in? Which house would you like for us to buy? Which we bought sight unseen just on our screen on our phone. <laughs> And which friends would you like us to befriend as neighbors on behalf of you? We're pretty serious uh, about obeying which neighborhood he wants us to live in. And I'm convinced when we pray for our neighbors, even before we really know them, God becomes the creator of conversations yet to come. Prayer's the prerequisite that enables us to be his dispensers of grace. So Paul's point, devote yourselves to prayer. It's actually a command in the original language. It's not an option. Like, devote yourselves to prayer, intense, exact prayer. And when conversations do come with your neighbors and, and, and an acquaintance develops and a friendship kind of births and begins to take shape, we can, Paul says, then conduct yourselves well. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward them who are not yet in covenant relationship with the God that you are. So he says, conduct yourselves with wisdom. Another command, it's not an option. Live well, Uh, walk around, live your lives well toward those not in covenant with God. Be near them who are not in covenant with God. Behave wisely, behave decently, properly, respectfully toward them, model covenant values to them, be among them. We need not isolate ourselves from them as though we're gonna get some virus or some disease. Don't do that, don't be afraid of that. So how do we do this though? Well, Paul says, by making the most of every opportunity. It's a participle if you like grammar. (laughs) It's an ongoing idea, it's a continuous action, making the most. It's buying out the season, buying out the moment. Maybe you've heard the phrase, redeeming the time, purchasing the time. Not a one-time purchase in your credit card, but multiple purchases with your life, making the most. And Nell and I, I personally determined to make this time for this neighborhood different than other neighborhoods. God's heart had, God's heart had been some, an impression on my heart, uh, breaking my heart for for covenant outsiders. And in previous neighborhoods uh, where I lived as a pastor in churches, I'm not sure I did this really well. I'm not sure I, need, I heeded the, the spirits nudging to walk out of my front door because it's like, I, I'm, I'm pastoring this church. I don't have time for anybody else. 
And he really convicted me of that, and so it was going to be different with, what I, with this neighbor, Rick, and to be more intentional in fostering our friendship with him, uh, that I was trying to redeem that. So whenever I'd see Rick walking outside with his dogs, uh, I'd actually literally open up our sliding glass door in the back or front door in the front and go, hey, Rick, just to try to get some reaction in hopes that he might respond and he might, he, he might want to chat. And it happened multiple times. And uh, he became to be a pretty comfortable guy with me. I was comfortable enough to ask him for a tool. His garage was awesome. <laughs> so it's like, hey, Rick, can I borrow? Absolutely. He'd loan me a tool. He'd gladly help me out. I'd shovel snow when I saw him shoveling snow intentionally. I'd go to the mailbox when he was going to the mailbox, mowing my lawn when he was, to try to see if there's some interaction points with him. And over time, conversations took place. And he, he learned what I did, <laughs> and he didn't freak out on me. He learned that I was a decent guy, that I, he was safe to be with, safe enough to actually, he felt comfortable enough to kind of share marriage tensions in his life. Man, I had, I had no right to pursue that. I just listened. Um, his wife had lost a little trust in his and in, in Rick, uh, you know, quick-tempered, uh, angry, kind of overscheduled with his police duties and going to school and his running his boy to this event and that event, trying to regain his trust. He was and his trust account had been depleted, and and it, it was going slow. So I just prayed, just prayed with him. Nell and I prayed for them. So what difference does your Christian existence make where you live? Your street, I guess you could throw in your colleagues, but your department, your, your apartment complex, your, your block. The distinguishing mark oftentimes is, this, is the, the synthesis of conduct with speech. So as we grow comfortable with outsiders, Paul says, not just conduct yourselves well, but actually let your speech. Paul encourages us to speak, and let your speech be with grace. How is this possible? My key professor, uh, academic mentor, Bob Lowry, put it this way. Effective prayer is not measured by how much we get out of God, but how much he gets into us. Prayer always allows God to temper us and to shape us and who we are, to take up residence within us. Guaranteed, when your day is littered with just dialogue and conversations with God, you're going to be more naturally apt to speak as though that's one of your best friends to people around you. So speak with grace, Paul says, as though seasoned with salt. (laughs) I love this. You may have some acquaintances with some salty speech. Uh, some who use profanities here, left and right. In, in Jesus' day, this was an idiom, or in Paul's day, he says Paul was using an ancient idiom uh, of seasoned with salt would be kind of similar to saying, hey, be witty, be clever, be creative, be humorous, and that'll woo people in. Let me tell you a story about my friend Bill when we lived in Texas. He was the presenter of the product in his company. They flew him all around the country, even outside of the United States. He was eloquent in speech, very intellectual. He was a reasoned skeptic of the Christian faith. One time, had an opportunity to go golfing with him, trying to befriend him, and he liked to golf, and so I met him on the first tee. He had already downed a few beers by number one hole, so by the tenth hole, you can just imagine how fun it was in his southern drawl and all, and the tenth hole was a par five, long hole, elevated tee. He had a beautiful drive down the middle of the fairway, and he matched me with it, and then the second shot, I had a fairway shot into this long par five, and it landed ten feet from the hole. 
And Bill was kind of standing right kind of behind me like this, watching my ball fly in the air. And he's holding a club in one hand and a beer, bottle of beer in the other hand, and he sees it land 10 feet, and he says in his southern drawl, oh, my Lord. To which, for whatever reason, that moment, I just turned around to him, and I said, oh, Bill, no, I'm just Derek. <laughs> well, guess what reaction that was to Bill? He laughed. You might think that's simple, but actually that broke through a point of relevance. Bill thought I was likable from that moment on, and we actually had several other conversations where he allowed me in. All started with a beer hitting a golf ball and a clever little salty phrase, an idiom. Paul says, may your speech be with grace as a seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. You're Bill. <laughs> and respond means what it means. It means to answer by the way, if you do your study in, in Paul's writings in the New Testament, this is the only place in all of his letters where he speaks about responding to anything, answering to anything, right here, responding to each person. The point is, I think, don't be too fast to speak. Respond. Respond to their word about the Lord and his grace. It, it doesn't take much salt to be influential. Just intentional doses of humor in the conversation. Notice something here. Notice the movement in the text from conduct yourselves well to unbelievers to speaking to each person. Conduct yourselves well to, the, to all outsiders, behave well to, to the masses, but speak grace to one, to each. Hear the move from plural to singular? Makes me think of Matthew 25. Jesus, remember this parable? Jesus, he just separated the sheep and the goats in the parable, and he says this to the sheep. They say, Lord, when did, you feed, when did we feed you? When did we give you drink? When did we uh, invite you in and clothe you and visit you when you were sick and in prison? And Jesus did not say this. I think we kind of read this into the text. He did not say, well, when you did it to the masses, you did it to me. That number's too large. That's numbing. That's, that's paralyzing. I mean, what can I do for all of the world? What Jesus says to the sheep is, when you did it to one, of the least of these. So find your one. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, that man was a good neighbor to one that he noticed, to one that he cared for, a fellow human who is unafraid to get into that guy's mess. Consider being a true neighbor to just being that to one. Pick one. It means enfleshing Jesus, incarnating Christ on your block. It means being the church away from the building. So here's a really practical way, all to lead up to some practical things. Here's one way to begin this. It starts with a piece of paper and creating a neighborhood map. Put your house or your apartment in the middle, where you rent, your condominium, uh, what you own. Put your house right in the middle. And, And if there's streets nearby or other apartment complexes, just jot the names of other neighbors on the map uh, and and begin to maybe post that somewhere where you see it, bathroom, mirror, or along the fridge. Here's my map today to maybe prompt you to pray. I got Dave and Jane across the street and Joan next door, a single lady, got a dog. I got John and his wife behind us whose dog barks not too badly. A few other neighbors down the road. So I'm at a corner with a lot of curb space. And, and then when you see those neighbors out going to the mailbox or working in the lawn or the flower bed or mowing, uh, you know, intentionally get out of your front door, walk across the street, call them by name because you're filling out your little sheet there. 
Maybe over the backyard fence, you begin to say it by name, not, hey, neighbor, but actually, hey, Bill. You call them by name. Maybe in their driveway, you learn how to pray for them as you listen. You're intentionally creating some intersections where you can hear them, and maybe, maybe sometime down the road, it's been a few years with my friends Dave and Jane, about eight, and I'm beginning to have some opportunities to speak of grace. It's not easy. You're not trying to win them to the Lord. You're just trying to be a better friend. Just trying to be a better neighbor so that he can shake you out with his grace. And always precedes, that always precedes is the, the precedent for successful evangelism, just to be a good neighbor. So here's a simple way to become a better neighbor, just to how to be a better neighbor. I'm borrowing this from my good friend Brian I served with uh, in the Colorado area. Five, five steps, a practical way you might try it out, just to see. Here's the first step. Pray, pray for them by name. Pray for them by name. Devote yourselves to prayer by name for your neighbor. It means, it means kind of being like Sherlock Holmes a little bit, learning their names, their kids, their dogs, uh, their, their occupation. Uh, doesn't count if the van says Roto-Rooter. Figure out what they do within that company, right? What they do, what they're, and here's the value. Talk to God about your neighbor before you talk to your neighbor about God. You're talking to God about your neighbor before you ever think about trying to talk to your neighbor about God because they may not be ready. Don't barge in until God opens that door and, and gives the opportunity. It will come a little more natural, a little more conversant, a little more safe, a little more friendly for both you and for them instead of forcing it as some assignment. After you pray, play. He's, he made this memorable, so play. What I'm talking about here is do something, have some fun. Laugh. Maybe a barbecue in your driveway, board games, hiking, biking, golfing, uh, a movie, whatever hobby you might share, uh, create some memory. And here's the value. The value behind this is you're trying to identify their strengths. You're trying to find out what they do really well and what they're good at and then kind of partner with them in it. Uh, Maybe they're part of the HOA or school district or or maybe their yard is immaculate. Hey, how in the world are you keeping your your yard and the weeds down? Teach me, show me. And what you're trying to do is just go with whatever context there is with your neighbor and you're looking for commonalities and and passions and interests where you can laugh and see their teeth and they can see yours. After you pray and play, stay. Stay in their world, listen and learn. Don't don't distance yourself from them when you see and hear their mess. Uh, Here's the value behind this. Love them because you are a Christian, not just because you want them to become one. Love them because you are a rep of Jesus, not just because you want them to become one. Of course we want them to love Jesus. But I'm gonna do it wherever their reaction is. Like Rick, when he kind of shared about his marriage woes, you know, I didn't distance myself from him and go, whoa, I don't know what to do here. I just stayed there because I didn't know what to do, but I stayed. I didn't cast any judgment, I just prayed. They're not a project, Uh, they're they're a person with ambitions and dreams and worries and baggage and stress and mess just like us. So discover ways to serve them. Serving our neighbor greases the hinges on the door. And then when we pray, it allows God to turn the doorknob to open the door for us to say a good word, not to preach, but to say a good word, which leads to the fourth point, say into their life at the appropriate time. This may be years down the road, but talk about how your story is. Share your story, letting them see the cracks in your pot. God's grace has been applied to you and eventually 
Tell how your story found its meaningful place in God's story. You can't rush into that. You've got to earn the opportunity for them to ask and inquire and be patient with them. Be patient until they begin to ask some questions. And when they ask, kick the door off the hinges. And tell them and share with them and be prepared to give a reason. Don't preach, just make it conversational. But talk about the hope that you have and why you do what you do living in Jesus. And lastly, after we pray and play and stay and say, obey. Obey the Lord. It begins by praying for them by name. Getting out of the shaker as God would shake you out. Living as salt seasoned with grace. I'm really convinced, and maybe you are too, prayerful conversations vertically open up horizontal conversations with neighbors naturally. The more we pray this way, the more the grace conversations flow this way. So keep this tandem going, and he'll give you words with grace. One day I noticed Rick's eyes when I said, hey, Rick, and his eyes lit up. He definitely was eager to tell me something. This was a few years down the road from that original garage sale conversation. Uh, I've been working, he, he said he'd been working through, remember the book called The Love Dare Book? It's like a 40-day prayer journal couched around the idea of marriage and maybe struggling through some things. And he, he said that God's been working on me. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Lori's beginning to see it. Still kind of respecting her reluctance and, and still trying to honor her hesitancy, Rick felt like he was becoming her man again. Hmm. And they were mending. And then the day that we were pulling out with our U-Haul filled with stuff from that neighborhood, I found an envelope underneath the wiper of the U-Haul truck, and it was from Rick. It said this, Derek, where would my life be if it weren't for you and Nell? God bless you because he used you to salvage my life and my family. And this is it. You've been the best neighbors. We hate to see you go. May God go with you. So if you were to move out of your neighborhood, out of your street, anybody gonna shed any tears about that? I mean, mean, sorrowful tears, like we're gonna miss you tears, like sad tears? Would anybody notice? How many would say, you've been the best neighbor? we've ever had. So stay salty, my friend. (laughs) God will use you to season and to preserve and be a catalyst for appropriate change with people right around you, to greatly influence people's lives that you live near by being near them and experiencing God's grace through you. Pray they will consider entering into a covenant relationship with God so that they can be salty. For others. How about if we pray about that, okay? Really, I'm thankful for each, each follower of Jesus here, each friend here, this church, Lord. Really, I'm praying thankfully for your grace when we have resisted sometimes being salt of the earth. But thank you for your work through us to put us in certain positions around people and giving us wisdom and discernment to be patient and how to listen well, and how to pray devotedly, and how to conduct ourselves well to earn the opportunity to to say something at just the right time. I'm praying that you'd give us those opportunities. I'm praying that you would work through each person here with the neighbor or friend, family, colleague that's nearest to them. You would work. You You would convince 
each of us of the authority of the Spirit of God within us. It gives us confidence to actually live out salty lives, unashamed, wise and discerning, but with grace. I'm praying that you would encourage each one of us. For your gospel impact to be made, that's our earnest desire. You'd work through us to change friends around us for you. In your name, Lord, for your glory, amen.